0: This is the Foot in the Box podcast for the week of Monday, June 12th. Welcome to episode 97 of the A Foot in the Box podcast. My name is Peter Elliott. And I'm Paul Elliott. We are twin brothers coming to you from Champaign, Illinois on a uh, beautiful little hot Sunday afternoon. Yeah, it's gorgeous out. Are you, like what's your perfect temperature outside? Uh, I love Northern California type weather. So like uh, mid-60s, low 70s during the day and then... Like, 50s at night. Hm. What about is, you? Is San Fran Northern California? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm like anywhere in the 70s with a breeze. I'm good. This week was outstanding. Yeah, pretty great. Welcome to our podcast. This is a weekly baseball podcast. We have been doing it for uh, two and a half years now. Thanks for listening. Uh, before we get into anything, uh, we need to address probably the biggest thing that's ever happened to our podcast. Yes, we do. Uh, Would you like to read our official statement? uh, Sure. Here's our official statement that we put out uh, earlier this week. Late Thursday night, Peter became aware of a potential hack into the Foot in the Box podcast feed. By Friday morning, the entire feed had been replaced by an entity called Tenix 9 After very minimal research and investigation, we have determined it is an attack of Russian origin. After meddling in our 2016 election, the Russians are now coming after the last great American institution, baseball. As Mr. Comey stated in front of Congress yesterday, the fight against Russian hacking is a bipartisan issue. We are determined to fight the Tenex at every turn. (laughs) May baseball reign forever. Uh, So there is that. What's interesting about this, for the listeners, this shows a little bit about each of our involvement in the podcast our podcast had been hacked, fixed and we had issued a statement before i knew anything about it. So uh props to Pete for really carrying the podcast. Yeah. Um otherwise, i just didn't have time. It was it was crisis mode. i didn't have time. If you had been in. if you had been like on vacation or something, the podcast would still be hacked. Uh i would have had my computer on vacation. true. Podcast never rests. Yeah, so for the listeners out there, uh you you probably noticed that on your podcast feed uh, A Foot in the Box was just replaced by this really weird European podcast called Tanks or 10X as Paul pronounced it, <laughs> T-E-N-X 9 was the number. Uh, I have no idea what it was. In the iTunes Podcast Connect page, uh, our feed had just been replaced with their feed. So I don't know if they like knew our password and just did that or if there was... Some weird you know iTunes problem going on, you said it was like an interview type show i didn't listen to it, but yeah the descriptions it was like a strangers interviewing each other type thing um so we yeah, we emailed apple that has, email has not been responded to hmm. uh, so apple not not in it for the little guy. I'm sure if serial or s town had issues, they would have resolved it by now uh but I fixed it again re- uh, changed my iTunes password, and uh, I think we're good. one other possibility. Uh, Grady was on my phone quite a bit at the <laughs> Cubs game last Friday on the way home from the Cubs game. And he was playing this app that, um, has like end game downloads. So he could have clicked on something there that would have, hmm. you know, cause I was logged into my iTunes account. I don't know if that affected it at all either. Yeah. I'm glad you took care of it. All right. Moving on to other things. Intro to this week's podcast. Going to talk about general baseball happenings? Scooter Jeanette had a four home run game. The first mm-hmm. since uh, 2012. Uh, I will ask Paul if, how many of the other 16 he can name. Ooh, My prediction zero. is two to three. For a deep dive this week, we're, we are going to talk about a hitter. I'll give you this one for free, Paul. A hitter that hit four home runs in a game, Lou Gehrig. Hmm. Um, so very interested in uh, um, discussing him with you, Paul. Had a, v- had a very uh, fascinating career. Likewise. And then we have an interview with Michael Lortz. Uh, he is the fangraph june resident this month uh, cuz it's june um, but he is all into Tampa Bay baseball uh attendance in the market the Tampa Bay market and and their relationship with the Tampa Bay Rays so uh interested to talk to him uh, as an attendance nerd it's one of my dreams to talk to someone who cares <laughs> as, as much about attendance as me and we have our last TWTW on home field advantage mm. I'm sure you've all been waiting. All right. Well, let's start with a Nelly update. Uh Paul, did you know that he is forty two years old? I did not. Is that the update? That is the Nelly update. <laughs> Last year I think we announced he was forty one. He is now forty two. His birthday, if you remember, uh November second when the Cubs won the World Series. That's right. He said it was the worst day of his life. Yeah. Alright, moving on. Uh congrats to Champaign Central. Their baseball team, they made it to state uh, and got fourth. So it was the first sectional title since the '60s. Their field, home field, is right across from my house, so I feel very. I can connected. see it as we record the podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel very connected to the the baseball team. Wish I would have watched more of their games this year. Uh, I would usually just from my car after work or when I was running, I'd watch a few uh, at bats and I knew that they were pretty good, um, but they weren't. Phenomenal. The their final record was thirty and eleven, so they kind of went on a uh, a fun uh, Cinderella run. They were down six nothing in the super sectional, came back and won that, and then lost by one in the uh, semifinal. Mm-hmm. So tough end of the season, but uh, a great accomplishment for the Central Maroons. Yeah, props to them. Yes, and speaking of amateur talent, the MLB draft is tomorrow or Monday, as you're listening to this today, podcast today. Today, yes. Uh, You can tune in, if you're listening to this uh, in time, at 6 o'clock tonight, Monday night, on MLB Network, and then you can catch uh, the whole draft uh, Monday through Wednesday on MLB.com. They're live streaming it. Sounds like Hunter Green, uh, shortstop and pitcher out of California, high school player, will be the first overall pick by the Twins. Really, I think the rumor is going number two. Really? Yeah. Uh they're also interested, Kyle Wright is a righty out of Vanderbilt. Yeah, he's he's the guy that they're expecting to go one. And also Brendan McKay. Another guy to keep your eye on. Uh lefty out of Louisville. Locally to us, we've talked about this before, but just a reminder, the White Sox pick eleven, Cubs pick twenty seven and thirty, and then obviously the Cardinals are without a uh a first, second, or third round pick because of uh the hacking in Dexter Fowler. Yes. Uh do you think Uh, Chris Correa could be involved in our podcast hacking. (laughs) (laughs) Safe assumption. From prison. Safe assumption. Now, uh, getting back to the hacking scandal (laughs) while I'm I'm thinking of it. Last year, in one of your uh, slices for Out of the Box, you brought a Russian slice. Do you remember this? Yeah, that bat sales were up in Russia. Yes. Did you say anything that would disparage the Russians at all? I don't think so. I feel like your tone was pretty hostile throughout. The tone was more like flabbergasted. Mm. Yeah, it is interesting. But just to be clear, there is no Russian connection to. Oh, we, after investigating. Did you not read the statement? They they spoke English. Putin speaks English. True. Uh, All right. Scooter Jeanette hit four home runs in a game uh, this past week on Tuesday. This is odd because he only had like 38 career homers before Mm -hmm. that. He is the 17th major league player ever had hit four home runs in a game first since 2012 first national league player to do it since sean green 2002 that was the only one i knew sean green juan gonzalez juan gonzalez did not do it um how many can you name paul I, i've given you two already sean green Lou Gehrig. a ever do it uh a did not do it hmm 2012 for the rangers Many consider this the best four-home run game of all time because he came close to hitting five. Hmm. 2012 Rangers, Adrian Beltre? Nope. Lefty. Former no. number one draft pick. Josh Hamilton. That's right. 2003 Blue Jays. Um, O'Mondesi? Nope. Left-handed first baseman. Left-handed. Not John no, that'd be... I was going to say John Olerud. Um, yeah, I got nothing. Carlos Delgado. Hmm. 2002, uh, Mariners center fielder. Not Mike Cameron. Mm-hmm. Wow. They Mike, beat, Mike Cameron. That was against the White Sox. Man. Mariners won 15-4. to four. Uh, Let's see. Some other ones. Uh, a White Sox player did it in 1948. Pat Seary. Nope. Um, Lou Gehrig, 1932, Sean Green, 2002 for the Dodgers, uh, Mark Witten, Cardinals, 93, Bob Horner for the Braves in 1986, Mike Schmidt, Willie Mays, Gil Hodges would be the names you would probably know, uh, Ed Dillahanty did it for the Philadelphia Ball Club in 19 or 1896, not sure what the team name was at the time, but they actually lost the game to the Cubs 9 to 8. Hmm. Uh the only uh only time the team with the four home run guy lost the game. So four you said 17 times? So mm-hmm. harder to do than a perfect game, right? Yeah. 27 perfect games. Sorry, uh Bob Horner for the Braves in 86, uh they also lost to the Expos. So it's only happened twice. I apologize. All right, uh, moving on. Paul, do you remember Eric Thames? I do. Uh, the last month, he is hitting 151 with three home runs. Hmm. So the storyline is John Lackey exposes him for steroids, he stops taking them, and now he's bad again? Yes, John Lackey and Chris Basia. Uh All right, the Astros in 2017 started off the year uh, 44-19 with a plus 104 run differential, Cubs in 2016 started off the year 44 and 19 with a plus 160 run differential. So, same record. Cubs were uh, a little more dominant. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think the Astros are very similar to the Cubs last year. The second best team in baseball, uh, Peter, you're intimately familiar with them after this weekend? The Yankees? The Rockies. Uh, 41 and 23. I don't think. You just strictly by record. You're Winning percentage. Sure. Uh, most impressively, they are 24-10 and 10 on the road. Wow. You can so- sort of say they're for real, at least for real as a a decent baseball team this year. Here's a hot take. The Rockies will not make the playoffs. I don't think that's a hot take. No, Would you say 41-23? and 23? Yeah. Yeah. They are in the best division in baseball, and that's even with the Giants sucking this year. So there are two and a half games up on the Diamondbacks and Dodgers, um, and most every other division only has one team above 500. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, with a plus-104 run differential like the Astros, the Yankees, they took two out of three from Boston and then swept the Orioles this past week. They are for real, uh, in my opinion. Their lineup poll, I'm not sure if you've looked at it, uh, very good on base percentage up and down. So Brett Gardner, this is Sunday's lineup. Brett Gardner leads off, 348 on base. Aaron Hicks, uh, 429 on base. Aaron Judge, 445 on base. Matt Holiday, 387. Sardin Castro, 359. Gary Sanchez is hitting again. Uh, he's got, I think, 11 home runs now. And a three sixty two on base. Didi Gregorius, 348. uh, And then Chris Carter and, uh, back up third baseman. But uh, I was surprised by that. Um, doing so, it with a lot of depth. Um, yeah, and so I'm surprised by Castro at three fifty eight. Yeah, he's hitting three twenty four, so that's propped up a little bit with the average. But um, yeah, he's been great this year. Yeah, I feel like Cashman's... Uh, established himself as one of the best execs in baseball. Uh, yep, and they uh, have Glabar Torres in the minors, who's hit really well in AAA, but um, you know, with Gregorius and Castro playing well, it doesn't seem like he's needed. Maybe third base might be his his, his spot um, when he comes up. Yeah, and Clint Frazier, the Indians' best prospect last year. Is he hitting well? Uh, yeah, he had a decent start this year. Uh, the Phillies were 12-12 and 12 on May 1st, uh, they are nine and twenty seven since then. Rough stretch for Bad Philadelphia. Speaking uh, of bad. Unless you had another Phillies. No, the White Sox. Mm. Worst team in the American League, now fourth worst in all of baseball. They are officially tank worthy. But that's good, right? It's great. Very good. Uh Quintana's gonna start pitching better. Yeah. Uh Cubs hot take. They will make a trade this week for a starting pitcher. Hmm. You have a prediction? Uh, I'm not sure who it'll be. Uh, I would like Sonny Gray, but it doesn't look like he's pitched well recently. They will make some deal for a starting pitcher this week. Mm -hmm. They are uh, running out. Lackey, Arietta has been bad. He was bad today. And then Eddie Butler, and then Mike Montgomery. There's just not a lot of depth there, so they need help. I think they'll uh, make a trade this week. Harper versus Trout. This is the last thing I have. Uh, Trout update he's only out four to six weeks because two weeks ago they said six to eight so <laughs> so my, my prediction was that he'll be back sooner than prediction yeah so maybe less than a month according two, to two to three diagnosis. weeks uh trout is second in war now in baseball at 3.4 aaron judge is the leader at 3.7 uh, he still leads baseball in slugging in on base percentage harper had a nice week uh 2.7 war for him uh, still has a 431 on-base percentage. He uh, threw out a runner at home uh, earlier this weekend on a 98-mile-per-hour throw. Mm. As discussed last week, through 96 as a high school pitcher. Obviously, as an outfielder, you're going to be able to throw it harder because you have uh, a curl hop to do it, but um, still impressive. Paul, do you have anything uh, before Baseball on TV? I don't. Uh, very short Baseball on TV segment this week. Last week we kind of blew it out of the water with the MacGyver uh, segment. So taking a step back this week, uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off came out uh, today, on Sunday, June 11th, in 1986. So here is uh, the clip uh, of the Wrigley Field scene from Ferris Bueller's Day Off.
1: Runner at first base, nobody out. That's the first hit they've had since the fifth inning. Only the fourth hit in the game. Oh, and to the count. There's a drive, left field, twisting and into foul territory. Boy, I'm I'm really surprised they didn't go for it in that inning. Lee Smith. What's the score? (inaudible) Nothing, nothing. Who's winning? The Bears. I, think I broke my thumb. Hey, bada 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 so wing, bada. Hey, bada, 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 bada so wing, bada! Hey, bada bada saw wing, bada, can it be, hey, can it
2: be, can it be, can it be, can wing, bada! You realize if we played by the rules right now, we'd be in gym? <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right, jumping into Out of the Box. Uh, The article I read this week is by Sam Miller of ESPN. I do about one a month from him. Uh, It was entitled, 15 years after Moneyball, are fat, short players any more likely to be drafted? Pete, did you read this piece? Uh, I didn't. I uh, have it open as a tab, but I have not read it. Uh, So as many of you are aware, one of the central storylines in Moneyball Uh, both the book and the movie was that old school scouts of the athletics were looking for the wrong things in players you know instead of looking at pure productivity in terms of stats and data they were looking at you know uh, how good a player looked in his uniform how uh, essentially looking at more of the soft skills and uh, in the book that Storyline reached its climax when Billy Bean took Alabama catcher Jeremy Brown in the first round. Uh, Brown was not slated to be picked anywhere near the first round, uh, but Bean loved his his power and his, his batting eye. He walked a ton, had a good on-base percentage, um, but he was very overweight and pretty unathletic. So given that backdrop, Miller wanted to know if there had been any sort of uh, Jeremy Brown revolution, as he calls it in the Um, MLB draft over the last 15 years Moneyball was 2002 And so as the As the title suggested He wanted to know are teams more likely to draft Fat, shorter players Abnormal looking players Than they were 15 years ago Um, And the interesting answer is No (laughs) Um, The average player picked in the first five rounds In uh, 2002 Was 74.2 inches tall And 198.2 pounds And the Numbers are identical for the first five rounds of last year's draft. And then if you break it down by hitters and pitchers and by college kids and high schoolers, there remains a very little difference. Um, there were five pitchers listed under six foot who were drafted in the first five rounds of the 2002 draft, and there were five in 2016. There were five hitters listed over 220 pounds in 2002. There were four in 2016. Pretty much identical in terms of just uh, height and weight, there was no Jeremy Brown revolution. He, uh, he quotes two execs, current execs, that say, or one says, uh, the draft is radically, radically different than 15 years ago, but probably not in some hugely measurable way when it comes to height and weight. Another MLB exec says, maybe the interesting conclusion is that more teams than ever are leaning heavily on data to help them make smarter selections, yet players still look the same. So Pete, do you think the uh, old school scouts were onto something? Uh, no. And what, I, what's your, what's so your, I read. I guess I read the introduction to this piece. I didn't feel like um, maybe the book is a little different, but the movie I didn't think. I came away thinking like the main takeaway is fat players are mm-hmm. good again. I mean, the other guys that they talk about, like Berg and like uh, Chad Bradford, uh, weren't all that different. Physique wise. And I mean, if you think about, I guess like Schwarber would be someone where the Cubs. Yeah. And I guess if you think about like hall of fame, who's in it, there aren't a ton of uh, like really overweight or really short players off the top of my head. I think Pedro was, was uh, pretty short for a pitcher. Frank Thomas. I don't think you really call him overweight. He was just massive. Um, Yeah. There aren't a ton of guys that come to mind. So I, I, I mean, baseball is still a sport and, um, people who are good at sports are typically in, in good shape and aren't really uh, fat or aren't really short. So, All right, for Out of the Box this week, uh, my favorite post to write personally, as I am blogging about baseball every day of the 2017 season, uh, was about Will Clark and Rafael Palomero. They were teammates at Mississippi State in the mid-'80s. Uh, Will Clark was a first baseman. Rafael Palomero was a outfielder. Uh, I did not realize that Paul went to college. He's uh, from Cuba, uh, but went to uh, Mississippi State along with Clark in the the mid-'80s. They played all three years together, 1983 through 1985. And uh, this was really the glory days of college baseball, as I've looked into it. Uh, Bonds played the same three years at Arizona State. Hmm. And um, ESPN has a great 30 for 30 uh, called Thunder and Lightning. You can uh, YouTube that, uh, and it's great. I watched it in uh, preparation for that article so check that out if you're interested uh just one stat i'll give you 1984 palmero had a 491 on base percentage with 29 home runs and 94 rbis and then will clark hit a 515 on base percentage with 28 home runs and 93 rbis Hmm. and they hit back-to-back in the mississippi state lineup and that's only in uh, 61 games wow so 29 home runs 94 rbis for palmero 28 home runs, 93 RBIs for Clark. Gosh, so getting on base more than 50% of the time and hitting a homer in almost every other game. Mm-hmm. Impressive. Yeah, and uh, over an RBI per game. Wow. RBI and a half per game. Uh, Jeff Brantley was also a pitcher on that team, so they were pretty stacked. All right, uh, my article, though, comes from the Des Moines Register. Uh, Tommy Birch is the writer of the piece. Uh, the title is Former Top Cubs Prospect Barely Hanging On in Western Iowa. Uh, and this is about Josh Vitters. Uh, first, though, I looked up the top stories on the Des Moines Register's website because uh, I was curious to know what's what's on the top of the mind of uh, the average Iowan uh, these days. The top two stories, Talking Football Fatherhood with Kirk Ferentz hmm. at Iowa, who is now the longest tenured college football head coach with Bob Stoops retiring. Hmm. Uh, he's been in Iowa since like 98. Uh, the other article, Iowa's oak trees are sick. Some say farm chemicals to blame. That one I would expect. Actually, I would expect both of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, my article uh, looks at Josh Vitters. He was the third overall pick in the 2007 draft by the Cubs and played for the Iowa Cubs uh, for several years, and that's why the Des Moines Register is covering him. So he's with the Cubs for a long time. uh, But now he plays for the Sioux City Explorers, an independent league team. Uh, He hits ninth and plays third base for them. Uh, Some other teams in that league, in the indie uh, league that they're in, uh, the Fargo Redhawks, Winnipeg Goldies, Kansas City (laughs) T-Bones, the Lincoln Salt Dogs, Wichita Wingnuts, and the Texas Air Hogs. Uh, the St. Saint Paul Saints is actually, I think, the most prominent team. They actually do well in attendance. I think Bill Murray owns the team. Mm-hmm. So, Vitters is uh, struggling uh, for this indie team, only hitting 164 and 73 at-bats. Former Cub uh, Tony Campana is also on that roster. They actually share an apartment together. <laughs> uh, Campana is hitting 286 and 77 at-bats, so a little bit better from Campana. Vitters is only 27, and like I said, he was drafted third overall. And I thought it would be interesting to look at um, his career uh, just with the draft coming up and uh, realizing that not all the the top picks pan out. So Vitters has a quote to start the article. He says, I thought I'd be in the big leagues hitting 30 homers uh, right now, but this is where I'm at now, and I know I still have the potential. So in that 2007 draft, Price went first overall. David Price went first overall. Mike Moustakis went second, and then Vitters went third. He yeah. was third overall pick. Yeah, yeah, supposed to be the third baseman, the future for the Cubs, and he he did pretty well um, for the Cubs minor league teams uh, for a few years. So in 2009, Vitters hit 316 with 15 home runs in Peoria, Class A, uh, and uh, Chicago Tribune columnist Paul Sullivan, who has been on the Cubs beat for a long time, said in 2009, the Cubs have gone down this road before as evidenced by the comment-like plunges of Corey Patterson and Felix Pierre after excelling at the minor league level. But Vitters, the third pick of the 2007 draft, appears to be the real deal. Uh, of course, he was not the real deal. Uh, after doing pretty well for a few seasons, uh, even in, in uh, 2012 in AAA, before he got called up to the, the majors, he hit 304 with 17 home runs. Uh, and then Theo, that was his first year, he brought him up to see what they had, along with Brett Jackson an outfielder that kind of has the same story as Vitters. Uh, both of them were awful to end the 2012 season. Uh, Vitters, uh, especially in 99 at-bats, struck out 33 times and just got 12 hits, uh, only two extra base hits. Um, and w- one reason he never blossomed, according to Vitters, is that he experienced uh, ADHD and took medication for it, and that uh, made it really difficult to concentrate, he says. And he also recently just was uh, prescribed glasses, so they're hoping that that turns around his <laughs> career as well. Um, Do you remember, like, as a fan at the time, was it like a specific pitch or like anything? Both like him that? and Jackson just struck out a ton and were overmatched. That hmm. seemed to be the main thing. There was a lot of like, excitement around them coming up because they were both first round picks. In my mind, Vitters and Mike Olt have always, have kind of been synonymous. Yeah, pretty similar. And I think both were hurt by injuries and just mental blocks did you look further on baseball reference who the cubs could have had in that draft uh bum went 10th overall i think man Mm -hmm. Uh, but apparently vitters is a big deal now in sioux city uh birch says in the article sioux city has two other former mlb players on the roster but vitters is the main attraction he's a former prize prospect whose name remains well known by cubs fans along the western edge of iowa Once Josh came here, it was an upkick for our fans and a big PR hit for us, Sioux City General Manager Shane Tritz said. They had a uh, Vitters t-shirt giveaway, which if anyone's listening and has that t-shirt, I would pay like 40 (laughs) bucks for it. That'd be a great shirt. A Sioux City Explorers Josh Vitters t-shirt. This is kind of his last chance. It seems crazy to say because he's only 27. But he uh, he's just struggled. 2015, he didn't play at all in baseball, and uh, so he's kind of giving it his last go around. Was, was he a high school pick? Yep, at California. Yeah, and that obviously was a Jim Henry selection. Yes, but he in the article blames it on uh, Tim Wilkin, uh, scouting director at the time. Henry blames it on Wilkin. Yeah, he says he trusted his scouting guys, and wow, he didn't. He was GM, not scouting director. All right, well, hope all your favorite team's uh, picks don't end up like Josh Fitters. But if they do, there might be some good write-ups 10 years from now. There's going. still hope. Mm-hmm. All right, well, that does it for out of the box. Next up, TWTW. When you can put some of those categories, you know, you got your
1: OBPS and all that and the VORPs, when they can put in TWTW and then interface those numbers with TWTW under that category, then you might have something cooking. Well, what, what TW cate- is- yeah, what is that? That's the will to
2: win.
0: All right, this week's TWTW will be a quick one. As I mentioned in our beginning, our introduction, uh, this is the last week that I'll be talking about home field advantage. I think this is the third third or fourth week where I've talked about home field advantage now. Um, it's run its course. <laughs> <laughs> but Pete uh, pointed me to a, a Beyond the Box Core article um, from earlier this week. Richard Bergstrom uh, wrote a piece And he, uh, we can link to it in the the episode page, but he, he studied home field advantage from 2010 to 2016, uh, by day. So he wanted to know like, uh, which day of the week do home teams, uh, play the best. And Pete, did you read the article? I didn't know. I just saw the headline and sent it to you. So do you have any guesses, um, on, uh, the best day of the week? Like if you're thinking about if you want to see your favorite team win, mm-hmm. uh, what at, day is it most home, likely? Which day is it the most likely? I'll go when the crowds is the biggest on like a weekend. I'll go um, Saturday. Wow, got it. Got it. Nice, baseball expert. <laughs> uh, how about the worst? Uh, Monday, Thursday. Mm. Yep. So Saturday, uh, home field advantage uh, increases by point zero one two percentage points, and on Thursdays. It's the worst, and it decreases by 0.012 percentage points. Uh, In general, teams do play their best on the weekends. Um, On Saturdays and Sundays, there's a 0.011 percentage increase in home field advantage. So um, interesting research. Uh, He didn't do a whole lot of digging into why that's the case, but in the comment section, um, one of the theories thrown out there is, as you mentioned, uh, attendance being, Hmm. being being the best on Saturdays. Thursdays are getaway day, and so I kind of wonder if uh, umpiring is affected at all, like we talked about last week. uh, Umps play a a pretty big role. Just bad uh, environments. Well, environments too, like just not many fans. Right. Yep. All right, well, that concludes our look at home field advantage. I hope you've learned a little something along the way. We all have. All right, next up, sons of the game. Yeah, Vinny the, the the greatest broadcaster
1: in my estimation that there is and, and ever was and uh, uh I, I I you know, when you think of Vinny uh it's that distinctive voice that's just unmistakable and uh you know, most of us we just speak English, we say, Me, Charlie Steiner, Rick Mundy, we say Here's the 1-1 one, one pitch, a curveball outside, ball two, right? We just, you know, we just, but Vinny's much more elegant than that, right? Vinny's like, the 1-1 one, one pitch on the way, curl ball two. And, uh, you know, I, I, I never forget when he paid me this uh, this great uh, compliment uh, at a big banquet one night. He, he said, John Miller over here is the best baseball broadcaster
0: in America in his price range. <laughs> wow. Thanks, Vin. So that was a little outside of the norm. Uh, That was John Miller giving an impression of Vin Scully. Hope you enjoyed that. Uh, It's getting a little hard to motivate myself to to find new Scully uh, intros, but I'm committed to doing so. We still miss you, Vin. Hope all is well. Uh, This week's sign of the game uh, is Lou Gehrig's farewell. So, right after this, we're going to do a deep dive into Lou Gehrig's career, but on July 4th, 1939. Lou Gehrig Day, uh, as it was called. Uh, He bids farewell to Yankees fans at Yankee Stadium. Uh, His last game as a player came uh, June 12th, 1939. Uh, Of course, ALS uh, prevented him from playing any further beyond that. So that's the anniversary of that is uh, when this podcast will come out on Monday. Um, So we thought it would be a good time to look back at Gehrig's career and... uh, This is probably the most famous moment of his career when he gives his short but eloquent speech. uh, 61,808 fans packed the stadium for a doubleheader that day. And then uh, between games, uh, lots of Yankees players got up and talked, including Babe Ruth, uh, an emotional Joe McCarthy, the uh, Yankees manager, not the communist hater, uh, also uh, spoke that day. But then Lou Gehrig got up to the mic unexpectedly. Uh, They didn't think that he'd be able to speak, but he uh, mustered up the strength and uh, gave this short speech.
3: For the past two weeks, weeks, you've been reading about a bad bad brag. brag. Today, Today, I consider consider myself myself the luckiest luckiest man man on the face of the the earth. earth. When you you look around... wouldn't you consider it a privilege privilege to associate associate yourself yourself with such a a fine-looking man man, as is standing standing in uniform in this ballpark 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 today? today? That I might have been given a bad break, but I've got an awful lot to live for. Thank you.
0: For this week's Deep Dive, we are looking at uh, Yankee great Lou Gehrig. Uh, Lou Gehrig played for the Yankees from 1923 to 1939, born in Manhattan uh, to German immigrants, and uh, is considered by most the greatest first baseman of all time, which last week I believe you uh, said Pujols was the greatest first baseman of all time, mm-hmm. right, Paul? Yeah, I missed that one. <laughs> uh, what's interesting, they were first generation German immigrants. Mm-hmm. And he played during World War II. That's right, yeah. And uh, actually got into an altercation with Ty Cobb regarding his German heritage. Mm. So important. Another thing to note about his childhood, uh, he had three siblings die. He was Mm. an only sibling, but three siblings (laughs) died at a... Only child. uh, Yeah. I don't don't think we have an accurate understanding of kind of how dire situations were back then. Yeah, I can't imagine what the parents went through. All right, so he went to uh, Columbia in New York City uh, for a couple of years, but then started to play baseball, got recognized a lot of different places, had one high school tournament at Wrigley Field where he hit a Grand Slam uh, that went out of the stadium. So uh was on the map. Uh, back then, you know, there was no draft, so the Yankees just signed him. And then by 1923, he was in the majors. Uh, but didn't really play full-time until 1925, And it was in 1925 that his consecutive game streak started. June 1st, 1925 is when he became the everyday first baseman. The Yankees manager just announced it. And uh, that went all the way until May 2nd, 1939, when he had to stop because of uh, ALS Mm -hmm. complications. Uh, Looking at that streak a little bit, uh, x-rays were taken later in his life that revealed multiple fractures that he just played through Mm. in his back and other parts of his body. Uh so he played through a lot of stuff to, yeah, to keep that streak going. A couple of examples of him like, you know, being hit, knocked unconscious, and then playing the next day. Some people think uh concussions were linked to ALS. Hmm. There's been some research that shows that. Alright, so his career, uh greatest first baseman to ever play was the MVP in nineteen twenty seven and nineteen thirty six uh nineteen twenty seven, his stats. Forty seven home runs, one hundred and seventy three RBIs and eighteen triples. Uh, Just a crazy season. Uh, Had a career 447 on base percentage. Hit over 300 and had an on-base percentage of over 400 every season. You know, that he was a permanent player uh, before ALS affected him. So that's nuts. Just incredibly consistent to hit over 300 and an OBP of over 400 for 12 straight seasons. Uh, 1934, 49 home runs, 31 strikeouts. Hmm. You Know 150 games, 49 home runs, 31 strikeouts. Was the rare power hitter that did not strike out. Um, and his career was, was 17 seasons. Um, you know, in baseball reference, that's what it says, but it was really only 14 because of um the two at the beginning and then the 1939, he only played eight games before mm-hmm. he had to stop playing. And 37 was really his last like Garrick year, yeah. 38, he was decent, but um, I think. Uh, I watched some uh, uh, documentary type things and they say 1938 in spring training is when Gehrig first started um, not feeling himself because mm-hmm. of ALS. Uh, so in in his essentially his 14 year career, 493 home runs, 2,700 hits, he played in seven World Series and won six of them and that includes two sweeps of the Chicago Cubs. Yeah, and I think what's uh, one of the more interesting things about him is that Uh, He had such a kind of a dampered personality, especially compared to Ruth and DiMaggio. Well, he didn't get along with Ruth. They had kind of a a Mm -hmm. feud. Uh, He was very soft-spoken, very grateful, very appreciative, kind of stayed out of the limelight. Uh, Even his house, you know, it wasn't a mansion. It was a pretty modest home Mm -hmm. um, in New York, and I kind of like that about him. Mm -hmm. Didn't we talk about in the podcast... Uh, his his childhood home was right. for sale. Yeah, earlier this year, his childhood home. We worked. should check to see if anything's happened. Yeah. After doing this, it's like, I see why there's a pull to like preserve. Mm-hmm. He's from New York, went to Columbia, played for the Yankees, right. died in New York City. Uh, so let's get into the last couple years of his career. Uh, like I said, 1938, spring training is when he started to feel off. But he played the whole season, kept things pretty private, and then to start 1939, uh it was just very aware that he was not himself. Mm-hmm. There's a story uh, Joe DiMaggio talks about seeing him at spring training that year in 39 and seeing him miss 19 fastballs in a row. Mm-hmm. And that sort of being the, the sign for him, DiMaggio, that mm-hmm. Garrick was done. Mm-hmm. He uh, fell down running the bases a couple times, um, would um, uh, botch easy plays at first base, just things that did not look like him. And at just 35 years old, uh, you know, not something you'd expect to, yeah. to lose that quickly. Like Albert Pujols is, you know, his late thirties and you watch him and you don't think like, man, like what's wrong with him? He has like a disease. Um, mm-hmm. he's just a natural aging curve, but well, you know, Gary was like immediate. Yeah. There are sad stories of him trying to put his pants on in the locker room and falling over, mm-hmm. um, that, that same spring training. Yep. Really sad. Um, so only had 33 plate appearances in 1939. Uh, shockingly, only one strikeout. So, uh, you know, dealing with severe complications with ALS, only one strikeout and 33 plate appearances. I thought was, was really impressive. And this is, keep in mind, this is still, the streak was still active. Mm-hmm. You know? So he was playing through ALS uh, to continue on the consecutive game streak. Mm-hmm. Yep. So early May, the streak ends, um, but he keeps playing or t- trying to play. His last game, like we mentioned earlier, June 12th, 1939. On June 19th, the Yankees announced that uh, Gehrig has ALS, and that was after Gehrig was sent to Mayo Clinic, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was interesting. And just a kind of a cursory uh, look on the New York Times archives, it was like front page stuff that he was going to the Mayo Clinic. Like everyone knew it, and they were waiting for the diagnosis uh, between when. Uh, he played his last game, and when the Yankees announced on on June 19th, uh, just two days later on June 21st, the Yankees announced that Gehrig would have to retire uh, from baseball. Uh, his salary in 1939, which I told Paul before the podcast, was insane. He took a pay cut. Thirty five thousand dollars was Gehrig's salary in 1939. Yeah, it's like the um, the anti Jeter thing to do. Like as the, as your aging star is on the way out, you. Cut his pay substantially. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh Gehrig was elected into the Hall of Fame in 1939. They kind of made a rare exception, and uh, he didn't have to wait. He just got uh, elected right away. Wikipedia also tells me uh, first number to be retired at I saw baseball. That. Yeah, number four. Um, was retired forever. Had a very close relationship with Joe McCarthy, his manager. And if you watch uh, Gehrig's speech uh, that we played earlier... Uh, McCarthy is very emotional as he introduces uh, Garrick, and uh, I thought this was something worth noting. He actually worked for the um, the city of New York uh, after he retired. He's like a parole officer or something. A parole commissioner. Hmm. Uh, he the mayor of uh, New York City put in a favor for him, so he worked for a couple of years uh, after he retired. Passed away in 1941, uh, and uh, all. Baseball fans, Yankee fans, uh, New York uh, City residents were all um, very sad when he passed away. He seemed like a a beloved guy. Even more than like, Babe Ruth was maybe this like uh, superhero type person, but it seems like Garrick had maybe a stronger connection to like the DNA of of Mm -hmm. baseball in New York City. In some ways, uh, he kind of reminds me of Mike Drout. Uh, Yeah, I've heard that comparison. You know, very, like I said, very soft-spoken, doesn't love being in the limelight and uh just very modest lifestyle what was mickey mantle like uh that's a good question because i get i always got garrick and mantle confused as a kid really, i always got garrick and dimaggio confused <laughs> <laughs> yeah there was like a, a stretch there and at the hall of fame uh, they kind of like show it it's like mm-hmm. ruth and uh dimaggio and garrick and mantle and roger maris like there's just a stretch of amazing yankees hitters yeah, well, what, 1927 was Murderers Row? They read where they led all of baseball in every offensive category but doubles. Mm-hmm. All right, well, that does it for uh, our deep dive. We'll end with an interview that uh, Gehrig did in 1939 with a uh, New York radio station. It was a couple months after he'd announced his retirement, and he did the interview on con- the condition that he wouldn't be asked at all about his uh, ailment because he did not talk about it publicly. But some very interesting questions uh, that he answers, including his thoughts on the All-Star game, uh, night baseball, and uh, the four best baseball players of all time.
1: We present at this time an interview with Lou Gehrig.
3: Lou, is uh, baseball played differently now than when you first started playing? Well, that's a difficult question. I think it it was played harder, and it was made more difficult for the young man years ago than it is today. The uh, young man 15, 20 years ago, when I broke in, had to go out and fight his way for a job. And the young man today is surrounded with the old-timers' advice and experience. So you can see readily where the difference lies. Lou, what's your opinion of night baseball? Well, night baseball is strictly a show and is strictly advantageous to the owner's pocketbook. But as far as being a a true exhibition of baseball, I don't think I can say it is, and it's very hard and very difficult on the ballplayers themselves. We often hear about ballplayers, ballplayers, Lou. Now, of course, the fans all have their
1: favorites, but ballplayers see things that the fans don't see. So who would you say has been
3: the ballplayer's ballplayer? Well, there's no question about uh, the three greatest and most outstanding ball players in the history of baseball have been Ruth, Cobb, and Wagner. Now, personally... Uh, Ruth was a typical fans ball player and Cobb was a typical individual ball player because I believe he had more enemies on the ball field than any man in the history of baseball because he played it so hard and he he thought of nobody I mean cutting or slashing or anything to gain his end he went through and yet I think Hannes Wagner was a typical ball player's ball player or the manager's ball player because he was always thinking of winning and, and doing what he could for the other fellow and for himself and for his manager and for his ball club and for the fans. That's Babe Ruth, Ty Cobb, and Honus Wagner. That's right. Do
1: you think there's really a difference in the brand of baseball played in the National
3: and in the American Leagues? Well, being an American (laughs) leaguer, I'd be naturally prejudiced, but the difference is not exactly noticeable, I don't believe. But, of course, the American League will use the figures in the World Series and the All-Star Games of the last 10 or 12 (laughs) years as proof. Are you in favor of the All-Star Game? uh, Oh, I think it's a great thing great i'm thrilled to death every time i can attend one and and uh, you can imagine the thrill i can get when i was chosen to play in them
1: the uh, receipts from the all star game go to what
3: they go to a uh, a benefit that ball players have among themselves an organization that we pay 10 dollars a year to that take care of the older ball players in the event of sickness and inability to take care of themselves in their own old age do you think there will ever be such a thing as a ballplayer's union? I don't see how it possibly could work, because at, at that rate, uh, a boy would not be rewarded for his abilities. And, and it would put the inferior ballplayer, the, the boy who has a tendency to loaf, in the same class as far as salary is concerned with the fellow who hustles and has great ability and takes advantage of his ability.
1: Would you say that ballplayers as a whole play for salary, or do you think the majority of boys play for the love of the game? I think it's a combination of both. It is nice to be able to earn money while you're having fun. Oh, exactly
0: right. This week's guest on the podcast is Michael Lortz. Uh, you can follow his work at TampaBayBaseballMarket.com, uh, also TBBaseballMKT on Twitter. Michael is the resident uh, at Fangraphs for June, like we mentioned earlier, and we're excited to have him. So welcome to the podcast, Michael.
2: Hey, great to be here.
0: All right, so you are all in to Tampa Bay baseball, uh First question: How did you get involved? What's your origin story for your love for Tampa Bay uh, baseball?
2: Well, I moved to the area about ten years ago. Started following the team when you know they uh, brought up Longoria and Price, and you know brought up a whole lot of young talent. Started writing on my own personal blog about baseball, and that was picked up by one of the Rays sites. Would link to one of the established Rays bloggers, would link to my stuff. And then eventually I said, you know, I I could use my own website. Well, let me talk about something that nobody's talking about Hmm. um, on a consistent basis and to the level that I thought they needed to talk about it. And that's basically the business of baseball in Tampa Bay.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, just the reality of the situation right now, uh, as you know, Tampa Bay is last in attendance, uh, just over 14,000 a game. And they were last in 2015 and 2016 as well. Uh, What are the main reasons for that? Is it the stadium? Is it the market location? Um, what are the what are the causes of that low attendance?
2: Well, I, I like to um, try to break it down You know, 100%. It's probably about 40% stadium location. It's not closer to 50%. So if we were to say 50% stadium location, it's about 35% stadium itself. Hmm. The Trop is an old stadium. Uh, the Trop was built in the 80s. Um, it's a dome, it's it's kind of a very it's a warehousey type of feel. About ten percent of it is the market itself. There's a lot of transplants here. And about ten percent of it is also market saturation. There's a lot of sports in Tampa Bay and we have just barely under three million people here. Hmm. But we have NFL, NHL, major league baseball, spring training, minor league baseball, arena league football. We got a lot going on. A lot of competition for dollars.
0: So uh, you you mentioned the stadium being pretty important. Where are we at right now in terms of the Rays getting a new stadium?
2: Right now, the the Rays have been able to look in both Pinellas and Hillsborough counties, which is St. Pete is in Pinellas, Tampa's in Hillsborough, and it's just separated by the bridge and and the part of the bay. Now the Rays fought for years to try and get the ability to look in both counties. But St. Petersburg said, no, don't do that. Finally, St. Petersburg was like, all right, sure, go ahead and look. We think that you'll find uh, Pinellas and St. Petersburg be better place. Now, whether or not the Rays do it or not, you know, there's about three or four places that popular opinion says that the Rays can possibly go to. Probably about two in each county. And then it comes down to funding. Uh, Pinellas County has more tourist dollars. In Hillsborough County, and Hillsborough County has some better, more convenient downtown locations. So there's pros and cons, and of course once you find a location and you have funding and you don't want to fall into the same problems that the Marlins and some of the other teams that have kind of, for lack of a better term, kind of swindled their taxpayer base. So the ratings are being very slow and meticulous to try and get public opinion on their side no matter which county they move to.
0: So are we talking like at earliest maybe like Six, seven years away from a new stadium,
2: well, they have until twenty twenty seven and then the lease expires, so but what probably they there's was an announcement that they might make a decision and let the counties know within the next year or so. Hmm. so and then you've got the stadium build, which is probably gonna take you know at least two or three years, both funding and ironing that out is probably gonna take about another calendar year. So, yeah, by the time the stadium is built, probably 2021,
0: 2022 at the earliest. All right. Uh, last question. Uh, on Fangraphs, uh, your latest piece was uh, entitled Tampa Bay and the Millennial Challenge. Uh, Paul and I are yeah. both, I think, considered uh, millennials according to uh, uh, the definition uh, most commonly referred to. Uh, are we to blame for the uh, Tampa Bay Rays attendance woes? No.
2: Um <laughs> You know, I'm, I'm very hesitant to blame millennials on the coming apocalypse. It's not <laughs> something that I'm, I'm willing to do. However, what the Rays are trying to do is win over a new generation of fans. Um, you know, before the Rays started, there were no Rays fans. So the Rays started in 98 and didn't get good until 2008. So you have a new generation of fans that the Rays are trying to appeal to. What the premise of my article said is that... Millennials aren't following the same buying habits of some of the previous generations. They want different things and stadium experiences. And and it's not just millennials, but fans in general want places where they can stand around and chat. They want maybe like a 360 concourse. They want, you know, maybe local beer or local food. And, and these are things that the Rays are trying to incorporate in the new stadium. So in doing that, they have to really cater to what people are going to want in the future. And the future of their fan base is the current millennial generation. These are the people that grew up with the Rays. And being that the Rays are only 20 years old, it's people who are at the oldest, maybe 30. Hmm. Because before then, they would have had a chance to generate a fandom to another team. So be it the Braves, the Yankees, or whoever. Are the millennials to blame? No, but are the millennials a targeted generation for the race going future in the future? Absolutely.
0: Very interesting. Well, we'll uh, continue to follow your work throughout the rest of June on Fangraphs. Um, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, keep fighting the good fight of uh, increasing baseball attendance in Tampa.
2: Yeah, I appreciate you reading it. I appreciate you know the opportunity at Fangraphs. That was that was it's been really cool for them. I should have another article up. This week, I'm going to be there all June. And of course, like you said, uh, Tampa Bay Baseball Markets, uh, com is where I normally uh, fly my trade in the Twitter accounts. So I appreciate it. And I look forward to hearing from you guys in the future.
0: All right. Thanks, Michael. Thanks again to Michael for joining us. Uh, follow his work, Tampa Bay Baseball Market.com and TB Baseball MKT on Twitter. I will uh, note here. That two years ago for the Brothers Road Trip, I pitched a trip to Tampa Bay and I was laughed um, out of our meeting. Um, And I was just doing my part to uh, increase attendance in Tampa Bay. There you go. So maybe... We'll we'll just wait until they get a new stadium. Maybe this has convinced you that I was actually right back then. 2023 Brothers Road Trip. Maybe. So White Sox, Mankato will be a superstar by then. It'll be perennial uh, World Series contender. (laughs) All right, uh well thanks for listening. A few updates. Paul is now 6 and 0 in our 2005 MVP, MVP baseball challenge. Our first blowout. Uh yep, I took an early lead, 2-0, but uh Paul came back and won 12-4. Mhm. So, uh not sure we'll get to play a game today. Um maybe on vacation we'll play like three games to make up for these these weeks we can't Sounds play. Sounds good. Uh episode 100 is coming up just 3 weeks away. Get ready for that. Uh, we'll announce uh, maybe next week or a couple weeks what we're going to do for that episode. Uh, Paul, the finals, Monday nights, who you got with your prediction on the record? I think the Warriors will win a close game. Yeah. I'll, go, I'll go Cleveland just to spice it up. That would be very interesting. I would be very nervous if that happened. If, if Cleveland Well, the environment for game six in Cleveland would be insane. But yeah, if Cleveland win games five, then they're going to win Game Six, which means the Warriors are going to have a ton of pressure on them in Game Seven. Now, as a White Sox fan, you should be rooting for the Cavs. Why is that? Uh, not sure if you saw my article this this uh, week. The uh, White Sox and the '99 Yankees, '05 White Sox, '99 Yankees are the only MLB teams with only one loss in the playoffs hmm. since the Wild Card era, and the Warriors should be the first one loss NBA team. Yeah, I was really I was pushing hard for them to to. Do the, the perfect clean, clean sweep, but perfect run. All right. Well, thanks for listening. You can subscribe on iTunes, uh, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. Promise that we will not get hacked this week, and uh, if we do, let us know. Mm-hmm. Uh, send us emails at footinthebox at gmail dot com. Follow us on Twitter at afootinthebox. Check us out online at footinthebox.com. That's where you can find all of the things that we talked about, all the links of the articles that we discussed uh, on the podcast, and where you can find my writing. Uh, which I am doing every day this year. Well, I think that does it. Probably anything else? Nope. just a reminder to keep a foot in the box. Talk to you next week. For the past
3: two weeks. weeks. For the past two weeks. For the past two weeks. You have been reading about the bad break I got.
0: Yet today, I consider myself. I consider myself. I consider
2: consider myself myself the luckiest 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 man 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 on the face of the the earth. earth. (laughs)
3: I've been in the ballparks for 17 years and I've never received anything but kindness
0: and encouragement from you fans.
3: When you look around, wouldn't you consider it a privilege to associate yourself with such a fine looking man as a standing in uniform in this ballpark today? Look at this grand man.
0: Which of you wouldn't consider it the highlight of his career just to associate with them for even one day?
1: Sure, I'm lucky. Who wouldn't consider it an honor to
2: have known Jacob Rupert? Also, the builder of baseball's greatest empire, Ed Barrow.
0: To have spent six years with that wonderful little fellow, Miller Huggins. Then to have spent the next nine years with that outstanding leader. That smart student of psychology, the best manager in baseball today. The best manager in baseball today. Joe McCarthy. Sure, I'm lucky. When the New York Giants, a team you would give your right arm to beat and vice versa, send you a gift, that's something. When everybody down to the groundskeepers and those boys in the white coats remember you with trophies, remember you with trophies, that's something.
2: When you have a wonderful mother-in-law who takes sides with you and squabbles with her own daughter,
0: that's something. When you have a father and a mother who work all their lives so you can have an education, so you can have an education and build your body, it's a blessing. When you have a wife who has been a tower of strength.
3: When you have a wife who has been a tower of strength and shown more
0: courage than you dreamed existed, that's the final standout. So I close in saying that I might have been given a bad break, but I've got an awful lot to live for. That I might
3: have been given a bad break, but I've got an awful lot to live for. Thank you.